Welcome to the Hive Poetry Show on KSQD FM 90.7 here in Santa Cruz, California. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella. And today I'm going to be speaking with poet Gail Rudd Entrikin. Gail, it's good to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here, Julia. Yeah, really good to have you. I want to let our listeners know that uh, The Hive, our mission is to bring a diverse community together in appreciation of all kinds of poetry by all kinds of people. And Gail is a Bay Area poet, and she's the editor of the online environmental literary magazine, Canary. Uh, Gail holds an MA in English Lit and Creative Writing from Ohio State and she's taught both subjects for over 25 years. Her poems were finalists for the Pablo Neruda Prize, won the Women's National Book Association Award, and were first runner-up for the Steve Coet and Catamaran Poetry Prizes. She's got her sixth book of poetry out, which is what we're going to be focusing on today, Walking Each Other Home from Longship Press. And that book was a finalist for the Blue Light and Richard Snyder Prizes. And her chapbook, The Mother-Daughter Papers, was finalist for the Comstock and Poetry Box Chapbook Prizes in 2023. Gail lives in the East Bay of San Francisco. And there's a very um, big, a big part of her life is living and the subject of walking each other home is the fact that she's walking with her husband, poet Charles Entrican, through the many physical issues he has. And I'm not going to say much more than that because I want, I'm hoping Gail will fill us in on this. And especially Gail, what we do, what we often do at The Hive is ask someone to bring a poem by another poet whom they admire, uh, as a way of kicking off our our discussion. So I thought that bringing this poem to uh, our discussion today as the first poem is just a lovely and poignant way of introducing your book and your poems, many of which, if not all of which, are autobiographical. And this one... Well, I'm going to let you talk about this one. I feel like I've talked enough so far with the your bio and everything. <laughs> Would you introduce this first poem and let our listeners know why this one was important for you to bring as a poem by an other? Sure, I'd be glad to. You know, I I have a lot of poems that I could have chosen by well-known poets. Um, there are many, many hundreds of poems that I admire and that have shaped my thinking and my life. But I wanted to read this poem by my husband, Charles Entrican, from his book, In This Hour, um, because he isn't able to write anymore. He's blind, and he has an assistant who he dictates the poem, and then she types it up, and then she reads it back to him, and then he tries to hold the picture in his mind of where the line breaks are and where the repetition of sound is occurring and he has to keep the whole thing in his mind, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And um, it's really a a great loss for him to not be able to sit down and write a poem. It's been uh, the way he clarifies how he feels about his life. 
and what's going on emotionally for him in his life. Been a, a well-known poet in the Bay Area for many years. This is a poem called For Caleb, uh, one of his two sons. We, he has two sons and I have a son and then we have a son and a daughter together. So we have uh, the five mixed kids. And um, this was written, he wrote during the time that he and his previous wife, Caleb's mother, were getting divorced. Um, and when I first knew him, and it's called For Caleb, who sits in my car and tells me he's not afraid. 12 now, he explains how all his friends' parents are divorced. And I think how ferociously he played soccer today. And suddenly I am afraid. I don't want it to happen for the coming days of my absence to become a lost language. Caleb, listen, I remember nights standing by your bed before sleep, before you even knew I was possible. And I knew for the second time that I was not alone. And I remember you on the slopes skiing when you bending far down into a tuck as we raced for the bottom, laughed out loud in the gathering speed. And giving into it, I went with you, leaning into the wind. I will never let you go out of my life. Listen, Caleb, just as it was that day skiing down the mountain, even in full flight, a way always opens at our feet. What What's so great about that poem, Gail, is how it begins as almost an it's for Caleb, but then it ends up being a poem of address where in that first stanza, we're not really getting necessarily that direct address, but right. Charles, Charles moves into that. And it's just a beautiful homage to that potential parting that happens as the result of a divorce and the parents anguish around that and Charles beautifully addresses that in that poem. Yeah, I think that's really one of the reasons that I love it so much and and there are several reasons. It it shows me it showed me when I was just getting to know him who he was and how he felt about his children that urgency and and I think that's really an important quality. And then also I liked the way he switched to direct address and increased the urgency of the poem. And I love the final metaphor, a way always opens at our feet, because it's such an optimistic and, and sort of determined way of looking at life to believe that a way always opens at our feet. And it's a, a characteristic of his that I admire. So um, it just sort of encapsulated a lot of things for me. And I think just to echo that in, in the book, Walking Each Other Home, you actually invoke Antonio Machado and his wonderful quote about the path, you know, <laughs> caminante right. no hay camino, walker, there right. is no road. Exactly. Yeah, you make the road by walking. You make the road by walking. So that is embedded in this poem as well as in your book. It makes a lovely little bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Well, let's move to your, your poetry. Thank you for bringing that one. Thank you to Charles for so eloquently putting down in words that fear, that agony, that and the subsequent reassurance that one feels upon the potential loss or the shift in relationship subsequent yeah. to divorce. And, and we did we did stay just incidentally 
um, we did stay very close to Caleb and he's still a part of our family. He's married and has grandchildren and they spend a lot of time visiting with us. So, so we, we managed to make that happen. So your first poem, I'm hoping I would like you to read. You, you gave us, uh, gave me five, five poems, six poems, five poems. Um, and I've kind of put them in an order that I thought would, would work for us today, just developmentally as we move through the book. I think all of these poems are from the last section in, well, maybe with the exception of one, uh, the last yeah. section of your book, which yeah. is in three parts. Um, so that last section, of course, as you're tracing this, this walk that's happening for both of you is moving closer to its conclusion. And I, so many of these poems in that last part are wrestling in a very bittersweet way with that. And yet this, this first one I thought had, it's, it's related, but in a tangential way. Would you read finally? Sure. Um, oh, you wanted me to read the poem called Finally? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought it was supposed to be for my blind man. Here, let me check. I've got it here. There we go. Finally. Every morning now it's the big girl pants and they're not black silk with lace, but cotton, voluminous and white. You've seen them hanging on clotheslines back in the day, functional pants for women who mean business. They mean to get things done, no allowance for pain, don't mean to spend a single minute caressing their losses. These women look straight ahead and forget to smile at children, forget to touch their husbands' hands, their old husbands wandering like children, these men who were supposed to be gods and fell, unable in their duty to protect, left these women to drop their peacock feather earrings, chop off their long, thick hair, toss their wild photos into an old shoebox, and take charge, grow up, finally grow all the way up. I don't know if I've said um, that Charles was diagnosed. Well, Charles had glaucoma from his fifties on and he, he became, he had less and less vision over the years until about three years ago, he came, he became completely blind. And then about 11 years ago, he was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia and he went through terrible treatment for that. Uh, um, he went through chemo that lasted about four or five months and then a uh, terrible two or three years in which he could not seem to come back into this world, it was just sort of lost in his mind. I mean, that's maybe overstating it a little bit, but he just uh, didn't care what was going on in the world. And it took a long time for him to start to care again um, because he was so numb, I guess I would say. And just a, a year back from the chemo, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So he has gone blind. The cancer has been controlled with an experimental drug that's working very well, but the Parkinson's continues to get worse and worse. So right now he's in, I'd say mid to late stage Parkinson's and also is completely blind and has several other things. He's been diagnosed with lung disease and uh, spinal stenosis and the man, it's just incredible. But he keeps going and he keeps um, wanting to keep going. That is, it's just an onslaught of diagnoses that he's 
being hit with. And throughout this book, in many ways, you address the the ups and downs of that. And, and that's why I use the adjective bittersweet early on. It has been a bittersweet, it is a bittersweet journey for both of you. I have other poems that are, that there are some poems in here in which I talk about my anger and my frustration, but um, I didn't put a lot of those in the book. And maybe I should have, because in fairness, there is a lot of that. It's really hard to give up so much of your own life, especially when you have a very active life of your own to uh, take care of someone else, even if you love them enormously as I do. And, and, and that's clear. And that's, that's also, as I went through this book, of course, the reader has this question of how is this relationship being sustained? And yet you continue to come back to that, uh, despite the enormous issues that you're both dealing with, the losses, the end of life, the approach of the end of life. Uh, the approach of of the end of of the relationship. It's it's interesting that when I read finally, for some reason I thought of Louise Gluck's Mock Orange, not and not that this is a repose to that, but just as this is such a no nonsense evaluation of one's power, um, I think, and one's the devastation of both loss and what happens with that loss, the strength that comes from it. Uh, and I think as a developmental phase right now for you with Charles and as a developmental phase for Louise Gluck with Mock Orange, I think there were some similarities. So yeah, I think that has to be a, a pretty universal recognition of that particular loss that that women especially go through. I think maybe men who are caregiving wives go through it as well. It's a loss of it's it's a terrible loss to yourself of your own of your own youthfulness um, and your own uh, joie de vie that you feel like you're having to give up and becoming the strong one, whether that was your role or not before. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM, Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and if you're just tuning in today, I'm speaking with poet Gail Entrican, Gail Rudd Entrican, and we are talking about her poems um, in her new book, Walking Each Other Home. <laughs> Why don't we move to another poem? Um, this next poem which I'd like you to read for my blind man. It's a good segue into that because of, of Charles's uh, loss of vision that you've mentioned and how devastating that is for him as a poet. It's really kind of amazing that he can visualize line breaks and the poem as a whole, which is ultimately what we do as poets anyway. We are We are putting this visual piece on the page for our readers but to be able to do it without seeing it as you go along is quite something else yeah that's i can't even imagine it i actually in order to try to imagine it i tried to do it and if i can't see the poem on the page and see where the line breaks are happening i can't i just can't see how to revise it how to make it better because 
I can't hold on to it well enough anymore. And I'm I'm 75. He's 81 and has, you know, cognition problems and still he's able to do it. I've read that people with cognition problems are able to hold on to the things that are the most important to them till the till the last. And I think that's probably why he can still do the poetry. This poem is uh, called For My Blind Man. You are walking in a formless space now, no down or up, no white or black, certainly no vermilion, no verdigris or rose. The food is shapeless on the floating plate, its taste known but unidentifiable, pie or pudding, bread or chicken, tofu or fish. With great effort, you rise up, stand, leaning into the light or wind or fearful thing coming. There is a chair. You sit back down. The dog below your knees is neither small nor large, but furry, dry, and warm. There is neither joy nor misery, no waking or sleeping. There is a bit of gravity. Water is good. But you are floating mostly, your lips parted, focused, trying to figure it out. You are always trying to figure it out, exhausting as it is. I arrive and press my face down onto your chest. I open your shirt. My mouth is real, not just a memory. My real lips are soft and your skin recognizes my hands. You can picture my body young and naked. Your eyes look where my face should be, but there is nothing. Still, you are hearing my words arriving out of the nothing and here are my knees along your flanks my palms, my fingers, solid and certain. You let go of the unknown, swim to me with all your might, the courage of your relief, my current sweeping you into a warm place, a destination, a moment's rest. Home, you whisper, home. Yeah, that one just needs to sit. Those final lines, a destination, a moment's rest. Home, you whisper, home. This is a, a short, uh, not short poem, but um, what the one that brought it brought to mind for me was, and she wrote a um, quote for the back of this book, Alicia Ostricker, uh, The Blessing mm -hmm. of the Old Woman, the Tulip and the Dog. Uh, oh, yeah. Which I think is, and that's a short I mean, this is three stanzas and that's a short three stanza poem, but the the associate association for me here is about the the blessings that are incurred in in uh, God's presence in, in working and loving hard. And I think that 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 feels for me what this poem is all about is the living and I would argue the loving hard. There is so much loving hard in this poem. Do you want to talk mm -hmm. about how this this poem uh, sought that out or was that on your mind at all? As 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 Charles is uh, he, he's working so hard, you're working so hard in coming to one another through all yeah. of the difficulties and challenges. Yeah, I think that that has changed. That has continually changed throughout the process of his losses. And, you know, at, at first it was easy to come to each other. That was what we had always done. It, it was, and then it became more and more difficult. And I began to 
relate to him at, more as an injured thing that I was caring for and less as uh, as a, a man, a virile man to whom I was sexually attracted and emotionally attracted in every way. And that was a very difficult change for me to make to, and it was very difficult for him to see that I was making that kind of a shift. And uh, we held on to it a very long time and we still can call it back, but it's very hard when he's not um, as mentally present as he was before. So who he is, is becoming less clear to me. And it doesn't seem to bear much of a relationship to the, to the man that I was with all this time, but of course it is, he's, he's still there and he wants the same relationship. So that's something that's really difficult. Um, we spend a lot of time uh, thinking about Buddhist thought and how it can help us in our relationship and how, and in our lives. And especially for him with all the things that he has to deal with, we, we try to um, be present in the moment and try not to compare the present moment with what we believe were, were the past because really our perceptions of the past were probably never really accurate. You know, you, you always are making it up as you go along. The narrative um, is everything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a process. Really. There's never a, a thing that you really were. And of course we invent ourselves who we think we are. We keep inventing constantly throughout our lives. And, and so when we think that we are no longer who we who we were, we're, we're just no longer who we thought we were. So it's, it's complicated, but it's, it's easier to just, and better, far better to just try to stay in the present, not to compare what we have now with what we had in the past and not to spend a lot of time worrying about what it will be like when we don't even have this in the future. Of course, I can't help it because I, I know that he can't go on much longer and I'll have to be alone and I have to try to prepare for that. But, and there's Friends. a poem. There's a poem that addresses that that you're yes. going to read later on. So yeah, um, I I want to point out for our listeners who can't see this poem on the page, and I hope that they can because we'll we will this will be posted on our podcast, and they can find a link to be able to order this book. But I hope that people will be able to to get this book because it's just a, a beautiful book to read through in its entirety. But with this, uh, there's three stanzas and the third stanza is the only one that has uh, a one line that's flush right, two words, I arrive. So it's, to me, that's echoing the very same thing that you were just talking about as arriving in this present moment with your husband in the state that he's in. So yes, thank you for seeing that. That was that was my that was my feeling as I wrote it that way. Let's move to another poem then, Gail, uh, because I think this one is just another another beautiful depiction of what's what's happening. Is this this slice of almost Alleluia in the midst <laughs> of all of this difficulty? Yes. Yeah, there, the, there are those moments, those euphoric moments, for sure, when you're making contact with each other and with the natural world. Um, blue moon, the second full moon in a given month, occurring about every two and a half years. Isn't blue, 
but pearly as an abalone disc washed ashore above the rooftops. We shuffle out in our slippers and night clothes in time to see it break free above the tree line, almost bouncing as the trees relinquish it. I help you find it, that flood of light, with your broken eyes, and we stand here swaying with the trees, marveling. At the last blue moon, we must have been learning to stand to the newest loss, your cancer finally behind us, and the Parkinson's, your disintegrating vision waiting in the wings. At the next one, for all we know, we may be gone. And so I yip a tentative yip, and then you yip back in your crumbly voice that gives way a bit, falls back, and then my voice begins to fill out, lift into a howl, and then, neighbors be damned, another howl for both of us, round and full of all the lost and broken things, lifts up in my chest, pours out of my throat, and the long high note spins all that loss into silver light. That poem, it, I, it, throughout it, you're, you're, you're moving towards this light. And I don't know any other poem that has the word yip in it, you know, three times. <laughs> do, do, you, do you ever, do you yip, Julia? <laughs> there and yip? I occasionally yip, yes, both to, <laughs> both to my dog <laughs> and to the moon. It's, yes. it's a good thing to yip and to howl too. Yeah. So this this kind of it it walks that line between yipping and howling. There's both the howl yeah. of of misery kind of embedded with it and the yip of euphoria. So those things are intermingled. They they cannot be separated. Uh, which is a <laughs> it's lovely that you've been able to do that. And I love this, you know, the epitaph too. the second blue moon is the second full moon in a given month occurring about every two and a half years and how you've taken that because there is a fair amount of anticipation of the future throughout all of these poems. And so this blue moon, we know this blue moon is coming and it's a significant amount of time in mean, two and a half years. You can argue whether that's a significant amount of time. <laughs> Um, geologically depends on what you're depends on what you're doing in that two and a half years exactly. if you're shoveling coal it's a long time it's a long time <laughs> um, but the the fact that you've got night and light you have light in there twice this effort to bring that light into where you are in the present moment I think is replete in this with the yipping and one of the things, well, let's stop for a little station break here, and then I want to return to this. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and I'm talking today to Gail Entrican, whose most recent book is Walking Each Other Home. You can follow the Hive Poetry Collective at Hive Poetry on Twitter or at the Hive Poetry Collective on Facebook. Our website can be found at hivepoetry.org, where you'll also find all our radio shows archived so you can listen at any time. They're available wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, iTunes. Uh, if you'd like to receive our tri-yearly newsletter, please go to hivepoetry.org and subscribe. We would love to tell you what we're up to. So you mentioned 
Gail, that you you and Charles are really working to be in the moment rather than try and recapture something that you used to have, the shifts in that of letting go. And this poem in particular, Blue Moon, um, that that phrase round and full of all the lost and broken things, which has such great rhythm to it, reminded me there's an echo in there of Ellen Bass's poem, Relax, mm -hmm. yeah. which which ends and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna read this last little bit because I think it's so gorgeous and so related to this poem, Blue Moon, and to your journey as, as Buddhists or working in that Buddhist framework. Mm -hmm. There's a Buddhist story of a woman chased by a tiger. When she comes to a cliff, she sees a sturdy vine and climbs halfway down but there's also a tiger below. And two mice, one white, one black, scurry out and begin to gnaw at the vine. At this point, she notices a wild strawberry growing from a crevice. She looks up, down at the mice. Then she eats the strawberry. So here's the view, the breeze, the pulse in your throat. Your wallet will be stolen. You'll get fat. Slip on the bathroom tiles of a foreign hotel and crack your hip. You'll be lonely. Oh, taste how sweet and tart the red juice is. How the tiny seeds crunch between your teeth. <laughs> I love that poem and I love that story. When the, when the Buddhist teachers tell it, it's usually a male monk. I like that Ellen turned it into a woman, but it doesn't make any difference really. It's the message is really clear and and hard to hold on to, but you can hold it as an intention anyway. Eat and the that, strawberry. And that intention is in your poem, Blue Moon, with that, yeah. that yip at the light, that 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 hallelujah chorus, which of course can take us to our the next poem. <laughs> hallelujah being such a um, well-known song by Leonard Cohen, who inspired the this next poem in in its title yes indeed and i love that hallelujah song too we were in when we were in new orleans a friend who had lived in new orleans for a long time told us to go to this particular club this was 15 years ago so unfortunately i can't tell your listeners what club this was but they could probably look it up and find it and it's a tradition that the band that performs at this club at the end of their set sings hallelujah and everyone in the club stands up and comes forward and takes each other's hands and everyone sings it along with them. And it was so moving. I was crying. Half the people were crying. It's just, it's a, it was a beautiful experience. And I love, I love that song. Anyway, this is, this is a called dance me to the end of love, which is a Leonard, another Leonard Cohen song. We see how the end is waving like seagrass in the sky. It's roundelay. It's accordions all the dying songbirds flying up as you clap your bruised and scarring hands from the leafy cushions of your chair, your unseeing eyes that stay and stay and stay. You stooped and groping for the bread, I slide into your hands before you ask, the birds swooping now to pluck it from the air. Finality is calling you, singing your name, 
and I would let you and I would let go now of your hand, pass you on to your next partner, let you enter her embrace as I declared a thousand times that we would never, I would never, but you are only a thread, a whisper. Soon I must take my chances with the vast and empty world of unrecognizable song. I who always sing while you hold me, the way we move together. How will I sing when you fly up with the birds and leave me there with a song too slow, too dark for dancing? This one is, it's a lovely poem of that anticipated loss. This is a poem, this is a poem that actually is very rarely has happened in my life, but it's a wonderful experience when it does. It just came through me. I didn't think about what to say next. I don't actually remember writing it, but it's, it's so exactly how I feel that I obviously must have just written it, but it was, uh, I didn't put a lot of thought into the craft of it and I, I revised it a little, but not much. And and it's interesting that because it, because you've got a uh, rondelay in there, there's that the the repetition of course. The rondelay is a refrain, and that refrain is built into um, uh, Cohen's songs all the time. Alleluia! And uh, I was looking at uh, Dryden's poem rondelay, and he ends his each verse in that kiss me dear before my dying kiss me once and ease my pain so that that coming back around to that and the sea the fact that the seagrass is waving in that same rondelay it's coming back and forth and back and forth uh is a beautiful uh image in there it's and it also I was thinking about Cohen's uh, song, You Want It Darker, which is also, <laughs> also uh, comes back to a refrain and in a lovely, lovely way. So when you have that experience, Gail, of this coming out in, did it come out in just one one fell swoop? How much editing did you do? Or did, did you need to do any? Uh, I looked up, I looked up Rondelay to make sure that it was what I thought it was. I, I looked up a couple of the words that I used to make sure I was using them correctly. I was at my writing group where we write to prompts and someone had given a prompt that didn't interest me at all. And so I just, I just started writing and I wrote this and this was what was on my mind instead of whatever the prompt was. Um, sometimes prompts can be helpful because they allow you to approach something that you know you want to, you want to get off your chest, just something you want to write about. You have the feeling that it's coming, but you're going to approach it in the way you always approach things, your, your own style. And the prompt can kind of send you off in a new direction and you can approach the topic from a different angle. Uh, and I find that really helpful. I tend to be a little bit linear in my thinking and I, I have to nudge myself all the time to get out of that way of um, being in the world and especially in my writing. Yeah, you got to enter it sideways. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a, a good good thing for us poets who do like the narrative uh, to find another way to uh, approach it, so it's not quite as um, expected. We can do something in a different way, and Cohen too. You know that the song "Dance Me to the End of the of Love" is 
he repeats that line twice at the at, at the end of each stanza. So, um, yeah, the it's just lovely that you have brought him into that um, with this poem and the bread I slide into your hands before you ask the birds swooping now to pluck it from the air. You talk about the, the, your sense of, I feel like you have a sense of uh, music in your poems. When you, oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because it's really important to me. It's really important to me. Sometimes just turning, changing the order of two words gets the, keeps the music going the way you want it to go. And I always marvel in my writing group when, um, so some people, especially beginning poets, don't notice that. And they've got something where they've just, if they've just tweaked that around, they would keep their music going, but they, they aren't, they aren't feeling the music yet. It takes a while, I think, to acquire that. I, I read a lot of poetry growing up. My parents were uh, high school graduates, but they loved poetry from that they remembered from high school. And they had a lot of it committed to memory and they would deliver it for us. And so I heard the rhythms of poetry as a child. And I thought poetry was a normal way to interact with other people. And when I started to get out into the world and say poetry to people, I found out people were really uncomfortable with it. <laughs> and um, I mean, I'm making it sound like I was a little crazy. It wasn't quite that bad. But, um, <laughs> oh, there's <laughs> crazy <did>. Gail again. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out. She's probably going to say a poem. But people did really didn't think it was unacceptable. I remember I, I recited a poem that fit the conversation at a dinner one night at a friend's house. And afterwards, it, well, everyone was just silent when I finished. And then the other conversation resumed as though they hadn't really heard me. And they were hoping that nothing more like that would happen again. And my friend whose home it was said to me when I was leaving, I can't believe you did that, Gail. That was in such bad taste. And I thought, well, geez, I guess I just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> but then I met Charles and he thinks poetry is acceptable at all times. So we're good. A good pairing. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. What pairing. were you going to say? Um, I was going to say that we, we are both, I think of that generation where our parents, where poetry was much more embedded in the curriculum and people memorized poems. Yeah. Of course we have, there's a long tradition, an oral tradition that preceded our, our written language where, that music was so embedded that I think we have somewhat, we haven't lost entirely because music is such an important part. So we have that, but they've kind of moved apart the, the written word and the musical word. So poet poetry definitely, I mean, the music of it is so important to me, I think. And of course, you know, Gregory Orr has the four characteristics of, of poetry and music being one of them. And I think narrative is another one. Um, and I, I can't remember the other two, but okay. uh, yeah, I think, I think for me that that's where you are living is in the narrative and in music in your poetry. Yeah, for sure. I just back to what you were just saying, I read an article recently uh, about some graduate students who did interviews with people on the street in the United States and in other countries, mostly Western European countries, although a couple Eastern. And in every country, pretty much all the people they asked could recite a poem by their, their poets, the poets of their country, from memory, just people on the street, whereas in the United States, almost no one could. Some people could recite um, a little frost and some... Um, 
where the sidewalk ends. Uh, who's that? The kid, that kid's book. Um, oh, Shel Silverstein. Shel Silverstein. Some yeah. people still knew some Shel Silverstein from their childhood, and you know the kind of the level of those poems, which are funny, but you know, right. really poetry exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of sad that, it, that in the U.S. it's it's really fallen away. I I remember even in high school, my teachers skipped the poetry sections in English class because they just didn't know how to teach it. It's very distressing to me. It's very <laughs> distressing. Something that allows us as human beings to access that layer within us that's deeper than the operational layer where we all exist day to day and have to exist to get things done. But without acknowledging that deeper layer, the things that are going on with us at a deeply internal place, I think is creating a disservice to all of us. Yeah, for sure. As William Carlos Williams said, you cannot get the news from poems, but men die miserably every day for the lack of what is found there. Great quote. (laughs) And you know, if someone asks you to read something at their wedding or at the funeral of a friend or family member, people go to go online and look for poems because that's the way you can get in touch with your deepest feelings and they don't know any, uh, and they don't feel capable. Many people don't feel capable of writing that up for themselves. I, I understand that, but it's it's interesting that that's its niche now. It's, it's the only place um, you can really find it in regular daily life. Yeah, it's really an unfortunate thing. Yeah. <laughs> Along with the fact that the, the humanities are not being... Um, addressed in in people just aren't studying the humanities the way they used to. History and English are both right. uh, suffering from a lack of attention right now. Yeah, there's that acronym for what everybody's studying: science, math. It's four letters. Um, I can't think of it. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah, STEM. Yeah, science, technology, engineering, and math. And occasionally yeah. they put the A in for art, but <laughs> almost as an afterthought. <laughs> But that's what gives it the steam. Absolutely. You're listening to the High Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. If you've just tuned in, I'm your host, Julia Chiapella. And today I'm speaking with poet Gail Rudd Entrekin, whose 2023 book, Walking Each Other Home, is out from Longship Press. Let's go ahead, Gail, and move to this next poem, which I think sums up so beautifully what's going on for you and the place you're in uh, with this book and in your relationship with Charles. Could you read without you? Sure. That poem is not in the book, actually. It's it's newer, um, and it's concerning his desire to use the a Medical Aid in Dying Act, which is his plan. Um, if they don't, if this court decision doesn't succeed in taking it away from us, um, it's modeled on the Oregon Medical Aid in Dying Act, and he has it all in place. You have to have two doctors uh, involved and. They have to both be willing to say that you will probably die within six months, and one of them must be present, and 
I think in a lot of places in more rural areas, people are just doing it and not bothering with following the rules, but we're in an urban area where I think we really have to do it that way, the right way. So the legal way, I mean. So um, I've been helping him make all these plans and, and sort of suddenly coming to my senses about what I'm really doing here. Without you, one, already I miss you, even as I'm saying, it's okay, you can go. Somehow I will go on. You must stop believing you can stay forever. Stop building a better boat and take the little blue boat you have with its splintered wooden oars. Turn and make for shore. This time you hear me. You repeat, I have to head for shore. You ask me to write it down. I slide my chair to you, place my hands on your knees, sit looking into your blind eyes, your still handsome face, making you see. I am here. Help me write this, you say, so I'll know how to finish. Two. I want my life back, but I'll need my historic self, the one I haven't seen clearly in 40 years. Be careful what you wish for. I want to stop the endless grinding cycle of crisis, study, persistence, recovery, crisis. I want to sleep through a night, read a book, watch a film, ride a train. But days are long to be alone. What will I do with all the hours? Cry, talk to you, make another quilt, another poem, offer myself to the children, suffering friends. Will I wake up every morning longing to return to this day, the TV, this endless football game, you resting in your chair, me hovering, bringing pills, eye drops, apples? Three. As we spoke these words into each other, we came alive again out of the humdrum of slowly, slowly dying, you, and coming and going with blanket and lotion in hand, me, and we entered each other again in a new way, truth. Our speaking shocked us. Even metaphors ticked away. The boat of your life sprung forth on a placid sea, the little wharf in the fog coming closer, you suddenly remembering determination to guide your small boat safely home. The good doctor will come in his nice suit and tie, unpack the liquids, tubes, certificates. This will happen. All our children gathered, you will say what you can, swallow, sleep, and then you will be gone. The vast lack of you will take me by the throat and shake me till I cannot stop. I have to believe I will finally stop, and something resembling my life will go on a little while without you. The vast lack of you will take me by the throat and shake me till I cannot stop. I have to believe I will finally stop. That line just is so poignant and so riddled with the devastation and despair that it is anticipatory in this poem. And it starts out in that first part with this dialogue between the man and the woman. I mean, I can use the third person there. It's really you and Charles. <laughs> I, just, I don't know that, you know, it makes that much difference here, and especially if, as you've said, that you are, are very transparent. So the, the, the remove from, from that is, you know, a little bit of an artifice. But 
it's except in that I do hope that other people in the situation will put themselves in there. I hope it works that way. Oh, I will. I would think so. I would think so. That that dialogue. So that first stanza is that dialogue that happens, and then the second stanza is, is the poet you moving back and forth in time with what what was once what is wanted in the future and i really appreciate that that maneuvering in in the in the mind in the poet's mind through those different phases and wondering what's going to happen and and the deep deep desire and fatigue that's in that stanza as well and just wanting to have what <laughs> we would call a normal life or to enjoy these simple things, the train, mm -hmm. watching a movie, reading a book. Uh, but then what happens in this last stanza is almost dialogue as resurrection. As we spoke these words into each other, we came alive again. So it's fascinating to see this couple moving away, moving together, moving away, moving together, finding these things in one another that are still there, still present, however fleeting and disabled <laughs> potentially they are. Yes, thank you. That's that's well said. I should take you with me whenever I'm trying to articulate the book. <laughs> <laughs> the other the other thing that this brought to mind is Stanley Kunitz's The Long Boat. All right. With all of his references, which is another poem that's in, that anticipates dying and is, it's, it's what, that's one of my favorite poems. And so thank you for bringing that poem back to me through all of this with the, the taking your boat, what is it you say? Um, Stop building a better boat and take the little blue boat you have with its splintered wooden oars. Turn and make for shore. Um, I mean, Stanley in his uh, poem, he's his boat is he's too tired even to choose between jumping and calling. Somehow he felt absolved and free of his burdens. These mottos stamped on his name tag, conscience, ambition and all that caring. He was content to lie down with the family ghosts in the slop of his cradle, buffeted by the storm, endlessly drifting. Peace, peace, to be rocked by the infinite, as if it didn't matter which way was home, as if he didn't know he loved the earth so much he wanted to stay forever. I had forgotten that poem. To resurrect that one. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And I picked it up at further down. It's, you know, it starts off with when his boat snapped loose from its mooring under the screaking of gulls. Mm. Yeah. So this, this poem is in that same boat with, <laughs> with Stanley yeah. and yeah. watching that boat. Of course it's, it's from your perspective. But watching Charles's boat go and being beside him 
knowing this thing that will come and anticipating it and the sorrow and the grief and the support and the love and the care that are all there together. Yeah. As he makes his way away from all of you. Yeah. That's, that's the uh, challenge to put all that in there without too much narration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and this, in a different way with, because it's, because you're making use of the, um, medical aid in dying, the medical aid in dying act that was passed in California several years ago. Uh, you, you will know that date, you will know when it's happening. Right. I read, I, I heard on, uh, KQED, I guess, uh, some Amy Bloom reading from her book uh, about, I think it's called A Love Story, something like that. And I really recommend it. I went and got it after I heard her read from it. It's a, a, it's a really beautiful story about her husband who went to Switzerland and took advantage of, it's, it's legal in Switzerland, and went to a clinic where they gave him the medication he had he was they were they were fairly young in their 40s i think and and he was diagnosed with alzheimer's and it was coming on really fast and he just made that decision with enormous courage i thought and and she did all the research and made it happen for him also with enormous courage so she kind of set the the bar for me of what's possible and um i call it i call it up I thank her for that. I call it up when I need it. It takes enormous courage, Gail. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine. It's hard for me to imagine being in that position. Um, and I have deep empathy for both you and Charles and Charles's courage too. But at, at some point, you know, it sounds like what's happening for both of you is it's just quality of life. And to be able to make that decision on both your parts is enormously brave. And yet the acknowledgement that's there with what you both mean to each other and have meant to each other and what you've shared together um, has come or is coming to an end. Yes, and we have to know the timing of that uh, that end and he has to be in his right mind when he makes the decision and we don't want to do it bef before we have to do it because he still has some quality of life. He still wants to be here. The desire to live is incredibly strong in everyone, regardless of the situation. And um, so we don't want to make it early, but if he waits too long and isn't able to be of sound mind, he won't be able to use it. And his mother died of Parkinson's. So he doesn't want to watch himself go through what she went through. He doesn't want to experience it firsthand. Thank goodness that we did pass that because I think it's yeah it's a, a gift to many people. Um, and to be able to celebrate his life too, I think that that is that will be an enormous um, piece. I would think of of what you're going through, and I want to be sure to end on on that because we're coming to the end of our time here. 
to end on that celebratory note of what this book does in outlining and going so deep into a relationship between two people who are moving toward the end of that relationship in a way that is very honest, very uh, singular and very devoted and respectful of one another, but at the same time, just so glorious and to celebrate not only the, the, the glory, the alleluia in that, but the difficulties that are inherent in that. Yes. yes. And I, I just, I really appreciate this book. I'm very grateful to you for having written it and the courage you have in putting it out there and for speaking with me today. And is there, before we close, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know maybe about this book or um, any upcoming readings you might be participating in anything at all that. Uh... I have some readings coming up in the Bay area up, up here. Uh, I don't have anything down in your area yet because I don't have any, um, acquaintances down there the, to help me set that up but I have some in northern far, farther northern California and a few here in the Bay Area um, I also wanted to say that there's an organization called Compassion and Choices and if this has gotten you interested at all in this um, this discussion you can contact them and help support them uh, they are fighting a legal struggle right now but uh, someone is bringing uh, a suit against them trying to reverse this law so um and if you would like to buy the book of course i can't help mentioning you can order it from longshippress.com and uh he'll, and my editor lawrence durell will get it out to you quite quickly great thank you gail and uh we'll be sure and have that information posted on our website and it'll be on um the uh, web the podcast once that uh, goes up uh, following the uh, broadcast on KSQDFM. Thank you so much. And thank th you, Julia. Thank it's you. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a very much a pleasure for me too. Thank you. Thank you listeners. This has been uh, the poetry show for the Hive Poetry on KSQDFM 90.7 Santa Cruz. Go, 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 go.